Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Matt, how do you use your difference to make a difference? You know, I was having a conversation a couple days ago. You actually came up, to be honest, man, because I recommend your uh, your interview to people all the time. You oh, did you. an interview on The Maverick Show, and it was pretty recently. Uh, I would encourage everybody that's listening to this uh, to go check it out because it was really, really substantive. I mean, we spoke for a couple hours. I broke it into two parts. I just recommended it to some people. I was having a conversation the other day, uh, and I was talking about some of the themes that we had discussed in that interview. And, you know, one of the things that I was talking about was, you know, they asked me about, um, you you know, my perspective on some things. And I started going into this, um, what I started, what we started this interview with was my Irish heritage, right? And so we were talking about like the dynamics of whiteness in the United States and racism and all these different dynamics. And I said, one of the things that, you know, in terms of me, in terms of the way that I've started to think about these things is, you know, that connection with the Irish heritage and the the way that like you know a lot of these things start to fall by the wayside in terms of like understanding whiteness as an artificial colonial construction of dominance and actually if you go all the way back you see that the british were colonizing the irish and then the irish were involved in this anti-colonial resistance and still today people that look as white as anybody else actually have these anti-colonial politics right and so that sort of i think for me has been really a moral kind of baseline and understanding that anybody in the world, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're born or what your, you know, background is, you can take a stand for a just position. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Matt. Matt and I had a very, very fun conversation. I always love conversations that start with identity you know some of you are on the quest to figuring out a big part of your identity that you feel like has been missing for so long some of you have had a strong sense of identity since you were born and some of you are in the middle regardless of where you are in the identity journey there's an interesting pivot that it can cause in your life it can cause you to have a different worldview to reflect on the worldview that you feel like was imprinted on you or to go down a different career path and we talk about this and much more entrepreneurship, real estate, being location independent with Matt on the podcast. So I really hope that you are reflecting on who you are as a person and who you want to be. I believe that's the journey of life, figuring out who you are as a person and ending up where you want to be ultimately at your best self. That to me is the idealized journey of who you can be. So as you listen to this episode, I always tell people to take notes please share with you know with your friends and your family and and do me a favor and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts spotify please apple podcast please anywhere acast please it is much appreciated the reviews and ratings help the show in terms of visibility with that being said enjoy the episode Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's guest is Matt Bowles. Now, Matt Bowles is the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, and he started that in 2007 as a fully remote real estate brokerage to help you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere in the world. Matt and his co-founders at Maverick have helped individual real estate investors to buy over, get this, $100 million dollars in residential investment properties across 15 United States. I'm sure those states are going to continue to grow. We're going to dive into that in the podcast. But 
thing about Matt is I, I came across him because I was a guest on his podcast. And that's right. He's the host of the Maverick Show podcast, where he talks about his adventures in real estate and investing as well as traveling. And I'm really excited to have him on the show because we're going to have a wide ranging conversation about the world and entrepreneurship and everything in between. Welcome to the show. Hi, I am so excited to be here, brother. Ah, the pleasure is mine. So uh, I, have a, I have an interesting question for you. It, it, through research, I found that you studied abroad in Ireland in your junior year in college. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's ah. correct. So I'm very curious. You know, the Irish are known for their pub culture. Is there any pub that brings sweet, sweet memories for you as you think about what you were doing in Ireland junior year in college? Like a particular pub in Ireland, you mean? I could be, <laughs> or any I mean, experience. I could just, I could just name something like Fitzsimons and Temple Bar, you know, or something like that. If people know Dublin, but yeah, it was a, it was a really impactful year for me because that was my first year living outside of the country, and I had not traveled outside of the country very much prior to that, and I decided to study abroad, and it was an entire year. And I lived in Dublin, was based there, went to Trinity College, but got to travel all around Ireland. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple really amazing and impactful things about that year. In addition to just being on your own in another country in your early 20s and that college age, which were, number one, I'm Irish American. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably about four generations in the US though. And so what happens when you're that many generations into the US is a lot of that Irish cultural heritage and political history gets sort of lost and evaporated and you just kind of morph into like a white American who maybe has some distant semblance that they're Irish and St. Patrick's Day and something like that. But you really kind of get removed from a lot of that political history. And so when I went there, I lived there and I studied politics and I studied history and I happened to be there in 1997, 98, which mm. was the year that they negotiated and signed the Good Friday Peace Accords. And so I followed that in the newspaper every single day. I was in Belfast the day that they signed the agreement. I got to meet a lot of the people that were involved with it. And so it was a really transformative year for me also to just reconnect with that Irish history, uh, you know, and those those anti-colonial politics uh, of the Irish, obviously being the first British colony. And that really helped, I think, shape a lot of my worldview and my political trajectory going forward. So, you, you know, you get to reconnect with your identity. And then you talked about Ireland being the first British colony. I don't know that a lot of people know that. That is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and if you read the history, what you'll find if you've studied any of the other British colonies, obviously, uh, you're very familiar with Nigeria. Yeah, and I lived in. I'm from one. <laughs> you 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 know, man. And yeah. so, what you find when you study Ireland is that a lot of these colonial techniques were developed over the Irish, and mm -hmm. then. They went to the rest of the world and, you know, did all of it and worse and more and at greater scale uh, all around the world. But if you study that, uh, you will find that a lot of this stuff was first done over the Irish um, in terms of how that settler colonial process would work. And what you then also find is that the anti-colonial solidarity in Ireland is among the most profound that you will find around. So if you go to the north of Ireland in particular, which is still under British occupation, the northeast six counties, um, you will find Palestinian flags flying all over the place. You will find murals to, you know, Nelson Mandela and like all like you will find all of this there because there is a shared history of colonization and, you know, and decolonial resistance. And so it was just remarkable and really important, I think, for me to be able to see that history and immerse in that and, and reconnect with those politics. Yeah. You know, it's always interesting what happens when you really reconnect with your identity. And, and so, but, but for you, it played an interesting role because my understanding is that you, you got your bachelor's in sociology and then your master's in international peace and conflict. So you got a real start into that, you know, like the lived experience in junior year in college. And then you, you went on to be in the nonprofit world until you were 30. What was that like? Yeah, it was kind of one thing after another, you know, I mean, I, I think politically speaking, in terms of consciousness, like the first thing I really connected with sort of high school era going into college was the African American struggle. And that largely my awareness got raised about that through hip hop music, because I started listening to public enemy and political hip hop artists. And then I got very interested in the history of the African American struggle. Then I get to college. 
And then my advisor in the sociology department was Native American. So I'm taking his Native Nations classes. I'm learning about the genocidal processes over Native Nations. And then he was the one that said, hey, when you go to Ireland, pay attention to the colonial processes over the Irish. Let's do some, you know, some, some comparative work on British colonial processes over the Irish compared with over Native Nations. And so we did that. Then from there, I did a semester and I studied the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I went to the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, Israel and Egypt. And then again, I did with my advisor comparative work on the colonial processes over Palestinians compared with colonial processes over Native nations. And so it was kind of a one step after another. And then after I did all that, I was like, you know what? I think I'll just do a master's degree in International Natural. Peace and Conflict Resolution. Um, and I was doing activist work around Palestine. I was doing activist work around the north of Ireland. I went down to Chiapas, Mexico, spent some time with the Zapatista movement and all of that kind of stuff. And then once I finished the degree, I was like, well, what do I do now? And I, I did a little bit of labor organizing for a while. And then I had been doing a lot of Palestine solidarity work. So I was very deep in that community. And then that was when September 11th happened. I was in Washington, D.C., and the aftermath of that was just remarkable in terms of like how draconian and repressive the U.S. government's domestic response was in terms of targeting Arabs, Muslims, South Asians, all that. And so I was already very deeply connected with those communities through my Palestine work. And so the American Civil Liberties Union, for the first time in their 80-year history, decided that they were going to start a field organizing department and start doing grassroots organizing in addition to their legal work and their lobbying work that they've been doing for decades. And I was one of the first four grassroots field organizers hired by the American Civil Liberties Union specifically to do grassroots organizing around post 9-11 civil liberties abuses. So I was in Washington, D.C., uh, and I was doing that for many years. And it was an incredibly rewarding and powerful experience. Wow. Wow. I mean, I can see how that can shape your worldview, for example, because, you know, you have the awakening in Ireland, you you get to even dive into the culture, you come back, you have incredible teachers, it sounds like, and, and role models who are able to guide and, and help you, you know, come up with your own understandings of things that you might have been taught, you learn, you unlearn, you relearn. And then in the nonprofit world, this is something that I've had a few guests on and I, you know, I, you know, and I've definitely had my experience with the nonprofit world. But there's always this idea of doing social good, but then this starving artist mindset. <laughs> so how did you reconcile this idea of wanting to make a living for yourself while feeling <laughs> like you can actually make money in at the same time? Because sometimes some people feel like they're against each other, those things. But I think you found a way to fuse those ideas, well, concepts. The, I mean, the first piece of that answer is that I was a, you know, before I got a job in the nonprofit space, I was a student who is mm. spending as many of my waking hours as possible doing volunteer activist work, yes. right? Whether it was trying to stop the execution of Mumia Abu-Jamal or protesting the IMF World Bank, you know, stuff or, you know, doing Palestine solidarity work or whatever it was. And that was just all volunteer stuff I was doing on my time. So when I got hired by a, non by a, a nonprofit and they're like, we're going to pay you a salary with benefits to do the type of work that you've already been doing, but now you can make a living from it. I was like, this is unbelievable. Like this <laughs> is blissful. This is like incredible. I'm like blown away that like someone's going to like cover my, you know, expenses to go fly here and speak and give me control over what I say. And I get to do political organizing and get paid for it. Like that was amazing because it really was like where my heart was. And I really felt like I was doing really, really important work, particularly in that post 9-11 era. Of course. And, and it was incredibly rewarding and it was blissful. And for many years it was blissful, but ultimately, I mean, what ended up happening, we had a change in management and different stuff got shaken up. And so I left the organization, uh, moved out to LA, took a different job. And then, um, and then that, that job didn't work out. So what had happened though, while I was working in the nonprofit space is I did start to realize what you were saying, right? Which is that I'm never going to make a lot of money doing this. I'm kind of getting this trade off where I get to do what I love and I kind of get my basic living expenses covered. Right. Um, and so somebody was like, Oh, you know, you should buy a, buy a house. And I'm like, can I buy a house? Like on a nonprofit salary? Like, Oh yeah, here's how you do it. This and that. It's like, okay. So I looked into it. Sure enough. I buy a house and I buy a four bedroom house and I rent out three of the bedrooms to friends of mine. 
right? So I have three streams of income. I'm living with three friends of mine. So it's a great, really fun group house. It's in a very cool neighborhood in DC. And then that year, my house appreciates more in value than my entire annual salary. And I was like, mm, that's, inter that's interesting. Uh, you know, so you're telling me I could have just sat on my couch and played video games all year and not worked and made more money. That I mean, That's a pretty interesting concept. So then what I did is I started reading everything I could read about real estate. And then I was able to just use some of that equity to buy additional rental properties, but in out of state markets, right? So I started yeah. learning about this. And then what happened is friends started coming up to me and they're like, dude, how are you buying this real estate? You, you know, you work at a nonprofit, like, how are you doing this? And I was like, oh, let me show you. I'll show you what I'm buying and you can buy similar stuff to me. And so what I realized as I was doing this was that the real estate brokers that were helping us to buy this real estate were making commissions off of the properties that we were buying, but we were not paying them because in the United States, the sellers pay 100% of the real estate commissions and buyers pay nothing. So oh, I was wow. like, oh, wow, that's a, I was like, that's a really cool deal. Like they're providing all this value to us, helping us find these properties and, and we don't have to pay them for it. Like that's a really cool deal. And so what happened fast forward is when I moved out to LA and then my job didn't work out, I get fired from my job. I'm 30 years old. I'm like, what do I do now? And on that day, it was a very dramatic day because it was a surprise. Like, we, you know, I didn't know they were going to let me go. And it was a meeting and they're like, yeah, you got to be out by five and, and whatever. And you give us your phone. It's a work phone. And so I'm literally driving to the Verizon cell phone store with no phone. Yeah, buy a phone so I could call my mother to tell her I got fired. Right. And yeah. like on that drive, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I think I'm not going to apply for another job. I think I'm going to figure out how to chart a different course and how to go the entrepreneurial route and start a business and create more autonomy for myself in my life. And then if I can build a business, then I can, you know, do activism on my own time. I can donate money to causes I care about. I can do all of those things that I wasn't able to do in the nonprofit space. And so then I realized there was just one problem. I had no idea how to start a business. <laughs> I mean, I mean, so what I did was I bought the phone. I called my mom. I told her I got fired. And then I drove directly to the bookstore and I started reading books on how to start a business. And I drove every day to the bookstore in LA and I just sat there reading books. I didn't buy the books, Tayo. I didn't have a job. I just sat there reading them in the bookstore. Uh, and then this was 2007. And then I would look at the new business books first thing when I walked into the bookstore. And one day I walk in and I look on the shelf and there's a new business book that had just came out called The Four Hour Work Week by some 29-year-old kid that nobody had ever heard of called Timothy Ferris. And I picked it up and I read it the day it came out. And I was like, that is what I'm doing. So, I, and then the, the business model, I realized that I already had friends that were asking me how to buy real estate. They wanted to buy real estate. I was helping them to buy real estate. And what I realized from a business perspective was if I could simply get on the real estate brokerage side of this, get a real estate brokerage license, I could just continue helping my friends buy real estate, charge them nothing, and all of a sudden get paid the real estate brokerage, uh, you know, commissions and referral fees and stuff from the sellers in the same way those brokers were getting paid helping us without charging us anything. And so I was like, that's what I want to do because I don't like selling stuff. I particularly don't like selling stuff to my friends, but if I could help them for free and still make money, that's the business model for me. And then I started thinking, how would I build that in a way that's completely location independent and remote, you know? And so that was then the next phase of it. So, I mean, you said a lot there and, you know, I want to go back to that firing aspect. I've, I've been firing. The first time I got fired, it was very similar. It was just, hey, you know, uh, I'm sorry, we're letting you go. Don't make a scene. <laughs> and I went back, my laptop was logged off and I just remember just walking out in uh, in shame. And I just remember going home and, and feeling like this profound disappointment. This was in the middle of my MBA in New York when I came here and I was like, you know, I, I remember you going in a fetal position and, and crying, but like you, it was the same time that I launched my business uh, because I started thinking like, oh, I got to, you know, I got to figure out this situation. So you, you go from that, that range of emotions. And some people listening will be confused by this idea of <laughs> you having to go to Verizon to get a new phone. It was a very different time <laughs> back then. And you did something that is remarkable. You decided to read books while you were there because you didn't necessarily have enough money to buy those books. And so I wanted to have the audience pause there and think about how 
even if there's a situation where it's tough for you to navigate and gain, you know, mentors from, you know, your literary uh, giants, you can still find ways to do it. The library, the bookstore, you know, sitting down, finding different ways to, you know, ensure Listen. that you're using all those areas. Listening to podcasts, Listening right? I mean, to podcasts. there's, there's just, you know, YouTube University, as they call it, right? I mean, there's yeah. so much information out there now that you can find whatever you want to learn. If you're dedicated and committed to learning it, you can find it yes. for free. Exactly. And so then the four hour work week, which was, I remember when it came out, I read the book as well. And the revolution, you know, this is the, the you know, the genesis of Tim Ferriss becoming what he'll become. It sparks you into this entrepreneurship field where you focus on the location independent. Was location independent something that was big back then? This is 2007, right? I'd never heard of it. That, that book was the first time I'd ever heard of it. Right. Mm. And so that's why I'm saying. So I was like, I saw that and I was like, this is the whole purpose of this. Right. Like the whole book, what it did for me, the light bulb that it turned on was that if you're going to build a business, the purpose of the business should not simply be to make you money. It should be to facilitate your ideal lifestyle design, your freedom of mobility, the ability for you to move around the world and live in, in, in these ways that you want. And that's a real freedom. It's not just making money and tying yourself to an office. Right. And I was like, mm -hmm. wow, that's incredible. And so understanding that right was, I think the light bulb. And so then as I continue to read these books, I had another realization, Tyo, once I understood like what it took to start a business, I was like, you know what? I don't have most of the skills that are required to start a business, but I know other people that have complementary skills to mine. And so I went out and I recruited two business partners that had very different and complementary skill sets. And the three of us came together, founded this company. I sent them both the book. I was like, read this book first. And then let's, here's my idea for how we could build this, what we could all do, the roles we could play and how we could build this business in a way that is fully remote and location independent and would allow us to live where we want, travel when we want and, you know, do all of that. And so that, that was the Genesis. The art of finding a business partner is, is one uh, of <laughs> tremendous peril or success, right? This has been, you know, the, the, the Genesis of great businesses is also the downfall of great businesses. How did you make sure that you actually found complementary partners and you didn't, you know, fall victim to all the, you know, the perils of a bad marriage? So I have two business partners. One of them I knew from grad school. She did her master's degree in international peace and conflict resolution with me. She worked in a separate NGO in the nonprofit space, uh, also in Washington, D.C., and had been doing that. And that was her entire career as well. And she and I had done a lot of activism work together. So we had taken, you know, international observers to the north of Ireland and been in like intense situations together and really stress tested a lot of things, really got to know each other's skill sets and really got to work in a complementary team oriented capacity in high intensity situations. And so I had years of trust there. And I also knew that she was outstanding at things that I'm terrible at. And I'm very good at things that she's not. And we know how to work together and, you know, to do that as a team. So that was someone I had known for a long time. And I was like, this would be the perfect person. So I just hit her up and I was like, I know you're doing great at your job, but how would you like to quit your job and come start <laughs> a business with me? Uh, and she, and she agreed. And then the other person was somebody that actually had real estate experience. And he was somebody that had sold me rental properties. And I was very impressed. Uh, he was one of the top salespeople at his uh, company. And that was another uh, of my greatest sales jobs, which is I went out there and I pitched him and I was like, listen, you know, we need somebody to come in immediately that's already a real estate broker, you know, because it takes, you know, to start from scratch, you got to be an agent for many years before you become a broker and then to do this. And I was like, we want to start a brokerage like 
immediately. And this is the business model. You could come in, be the corporate broker and, and, and play that role. And, you know, all of that real estate experience and everything, you know, that he brought to the table was totally different because we didn't have any professional like real estate sales experience of any kind. Right. Um, and so, and so, yeah, so the three of us just kind of brought very different things. And I, I knew them from different capacities in my life and had worked with them in different capacities. And I was like, this would be the dream team. And so I went out and, and pitched them and, and, and it worked. And 16 years later, we're still together. Yeah. Yeah. So no stepping in tones, very complimentary skills, people doing what they're good at. And, you know, here you are a hundred million dollars in residential investment property later. What has been your favorite story that you've had so far since you started? Man, you know, I mean, our clients are amazing. I I think that just People come in with uh, our entire framework for working with clients is this. We're not one of the things that we're different from regular real estate brokerages about is that a regular real estate brokerage is very transactional, right? You come to a broker, you're like, I want to buy a house to live in. They're like, okay, they find you the house, you buy it, you live in it, and then you're done. And you probably never see that person ever again. It's one transaction and it's done. Our model was like, no, we want to work with real estate investors over the long term to help them build a portfolio. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Olio of rental properties over time, diversify across uh, real estate markets, you know, this kind of stuff. And that's our vision. And so we have everybody come in the door from day one, do a video consultation with us and talk to us about their personal financial goals, right? What is their buying criteria? What's their investment goals? Where would they like to be five to 10 years from now? And, you know, and, and so the fact that we have clients that are buying with us, you know, today, like just this past month, I had a client close on a property who has bought his first property with us probably 13 years ago, you know? And so those yeah. kind of stories about those long-term yeah. client long-term. relationships, I think yeah. are are my favorites, man. Now with real estate, you, you have a lot of, you know, Stories like the the older generation believed it was a means of gaining wealth, and now you have different different styles, right? There's Airbnb, there, you know, the different ways people build multifamily to single family, but sometimes now, depending on what generation you are, there's this it can be this overwhelm that comes with how much down payment you have. Is there a myth with that? Do you have to have a certain down payment, like twenty k? I think is what people always say. Is do you think that that's true, or can people start with much less than that? So with a rental property, there uh-huh. is a different, uh, you know, a, a different set of criteria than with a single family home that you're planning to live in as a primary residence. Okay? Yeah. So with a rental property, it is a 20% down payment is the minimum if you're using a conventional mortgage. From yeah, 20%. Yeah. Okay? 20% down. And so therefore, depending on how much the property costs, you know, the properties that we deal with, are certainly not in New York City or in San Francisco <laughs> or, or in places like that. So we're not talking about those types of prices on purpose because what we do is we identify what we call investor-advantaged U.S. real estate markets, uh, which are markets that have uniquely advantageous price-to-rent ratios, hmm. right? So where can you buy relatively low, rent relatively high, and get a more optimized price to rent ratio than you could get in, say, New York City, right? Yeah. Uh, and so we have a lot of buyers that live 
in New York City or that live in LA or that live in these you know expensive markets, either because they love to live in those cities or they need to for their job or their family or any number of other reasons. But they realize that if they were to buy properties in Indianapolis, St. Louis, Kansas City, they could buy 10 houses for the price of one house in their own city, right? Or That's maybe amazing. even more maybe even more than that, right? Because in these markets, you can buy a nice, fully renovated, detached single family home in a majority owner occupied suburban area for less than $150,000. Uh, stop it. Stop it, Matt. <laughs> Yo, that, that's not that might scratch the, the the bare minimum of a down payment for somewhere in Manhattan, maybe Queens. But seriously, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah, okay, exactly. <laughs> and so, and so, and so, therefore, if you're buying a property that's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and you're putting twenty percent down, that's thirty grand down, and you have a eighty percent mortgage, and you have your house, and then you get you get a percentage of whatever they you know they make on that, and then it goes from that way. So the way that our business model works, again, we are a real estate brokerage. So we are introducing people to buying opportunities for what we call turnkey real estate. So this is actually a Emphasis really important- Emphasis on turnkey. <laughs> this, is, this is a very important part of the, of the <laughs> like business model, right? Like turnkey. This is, this is not, you know, you, you know, you're not buying fixer uppers, right? This is a situation where we are giving people the opportunity for an off-market buying opportunity for- turnkey real estate, which means the properties are either brand new construction or they're fully renovated. They already have a long-term tenant in place on a lease, and they already have a local professional property management company that is collecting the rent, handling the maintenance, managing the property, which means that you can own it from anywhere. You don't need to live near the property. And you don't have to be the one who is the landlord and the rehabber and dealing with the tenant and all of that stuff, but you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate. So those are the buying opportunities that our clients get introduced to. When they close on their property, we get paid what's called a referral fee, which is like a commission from the seller, That's not it. from the buyer. So buyer pays nothing to work with us. <laughs> okay. I mean, <laughs> that's the, I mean, that sounds like a dream scenario. And it also sounds, you know, based on my research and you, it sounds like a way you like to do business. Cause I, my understanding is that your business is also socially conscious, correct? Yeah, exactly, man. So, so, so we donate 10%. Uh, and we started this because as I mentioned, like Valerie and I were both in the nonprofit advocacy space. We both did our master's degree together. Like we come from that world and we literally sat down and had this conversation. We're like, are we selling out if we start a business and like go the business route? Like yeah. what, what kind of ethicals, what kind of ethics are involved in that decision? And then we were like, let's talk through it. And we like, we really had a serious conversation and it was actually quite like, uh, you know, a thing that I really thought a lot about and struggled with and tried to figure it out. And so what we came up with was this, we said, okay, listen, we can start a business and we will say that we will donate 10% of our net revenue. Like before we take any money out of the company, you know, pay ourselves as managers or owners, before we take any money out, we'll donate 10% uh, of the net revenue to causes that we care about. And that yeah. way we're contributing financially, which we were never able to do before if we're working for a nonprofit mm -hmm. and we're able to contribute financially. And we're also creating a financial incentive whereby the better the company does, the more money goes to these causes that we care about. Right. And so that's kind of how I have, uh, you know, thought about this whole thing, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the, the purpose of the business, right? Like one, yeah, it's facilitating my ability to be location independent and travel the world and be a full-time digital nomad, but also our staff, everybody that works for us also location independent, you know, and they can have their dream lifestyle and we're facilitating other people being able to do that as well. Our customers, we're adding value. We're helping them build their wealth, build their passive income and be able to design their dream lifestyles. So the more we, you know, the more uh, business we do, the more customers uh, we have, the more people we're empowering in that way. And then finally, the more financially successful the business is, the more money it throws off to, yeah. you know, these nonprofit causes. So, so that was how we, we structured it from the, from the get-go. I love that. Uh, where can people find your website? Just so that, you know, if someone is probably going to say, I want to pause this right now and find out <laughs> more about this opportunity with Matt. With so, so, so uh, maverickinvestorgroup.com is the, 
is the website. Yeah. Okay. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes and then we'll circle back to this. But I want to pivot a little bit now to your location independence, right? So at this point, you know, you've built a successful business, but from my understanding, you're not always in the United States. In fact, you're not in the United States right now. So <laughs> where, that, 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 is, that is correct. I am in the Canary Islands uh, speaking to you uh, just steps from the ocean, my friend. Exactly. So how did you just, you know, just talk to me about your travels. How did you just create this digital nomad lifestyle where you can still get your, you know, your taste of your home country, but just, I guess, you know, build a life elsewhere. Because some people, whenever we have these interviews, they always talk about, well, how do you find love? Uh, how do you build a relationship? Or what we, do you feel disconnected from home? Like there are multiple things that people have when it comes to, to this. So I'm curious from your perspective, how it's been for you. So to be honest, I did not plan the lifestyle that I'm in now from the get-go exactly. And to give people context, I have now been a full-time itinerant digital nomad with no base for over 10 years. 10 years. So 10 years. And so I will tell you how it started though. So I told you that I read the four hour work week in 2007, uh -huh. but my first, and that's the year we founded our company, but my first six years of location independence, I was based in LA. I was based there because I loved LA. I was in a relationship in LA. My partner was doing her PhD at uh, UCLA and we had no business in LA. We weren't doing any real estate in LA, but I just loved it there. So that was where I chose to be. And then we had been living together for like three years, right? And so then one day she comes home and she's like, yeah, so, and she was doing her PhD in Egyptian history. And she comes home one day and she's like, yeah, so I got to go to Cairo for a year to do my dissertation research. And I'm like, cool, I'm location independent. Let's go to Cairo for a year. And so we got rid of all of our stuff in LA and we went to Cairo for a year. And at the time I was thinking it would just be for the one year. I wasn't thinking anything more than that. But then we get to the end of that year. And then I was like, you know, you've got now an entire year to write this dissertation. We don't need to be in LA for that. You have all your research with you. I can work remotely. Why don't we just pull out a world map and pick the top five places in the world we most want to live and just go rent an Airbnb for two months in each place. So we were like Rio de Janeiro, Cape Town, South Africa, Barcelona, and we just went around the world. And then that ended up going for about two years, actually. So Egypt plus two years. So she and I actually, as a couple, traveled the world together for three years. So that was a significant part of my nomad journey was doing it in a relationship. In so relationship. part of the answer to the relationship question so is have a relationship and travel the world together. I mean, that's, you know, that was the first three years of my experience. Then we broke up in 2016 and all of a sudden now I'm single. And then I got to figure out, well, now what? Because that was, you know, I traveled the world with her. So I, we had each other. Now I don't know anybody. I just get out of it. It was at the time, I, it was a seven year relationship that I had finally gotten out of. And I'm like, man, I need hugs. I need people. I of need course. community. <laughs> like, like, what do I do? And so I had actually heard about this program called Remote Year. And Remote Year, the company, puts together these 12 month itineraries for remote professionals where you live in a different city each month for 12 months and you travel the world together as a community. Nobody knows each other beforehand, but you just show up and then you travel the world together for a year and remote year takes care of all your accommodations, access to co-working spaces in every city. You know, they have local people on the ground that are helping to facilitate stuff to do and all that. So it was, I was like, that's perfect. Like I need that. It's an immediate community. Nobody knows anybody. They're all there to form an intentional community. I'll be with them for the whole year. Sign me up for that. And so I jumped on remote year in 2016, flew to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and went around the world on four continents, 12 months. And, you know, everybody that finished that trip is, is, is family for life. Cause we spent a year together. I just had a reunion with them, um, a month ago in Mexico city, which was incredible. And then after that, I just started, you know, continuing to travel the world, plugging into different work, travel programs, nomad events, you know, different things and started kind of learning, uh, about that. And then just, you know, traveling, traveling all over the place. So I've now been to probably in the last 10 years, almost 70 different countries that I've lived in, worked in and run the business from. 
That's wild. Do you plan on visiting more countries? Are you one of those uh, people that wants to do the entire world by the time you I, die? <laughs> I mean, I'm not particularly motivated by the country counting thing. I go mm. back to a lot of countries. I mean, I'm in the Canary Islands now. I've been here before. You know, I go back to a lot of countries that I've been to. I mean, as you know, like I spent about of the last year, I spent about seven months on the continent of Africa, and yeah, right. I only went to two new countries this year so i went to angola and i went to rwanda but the rest of the time it was just i went back to nigeria i went back to tanzania i went back to ghana i went back to senegal and back to south africa i've already been to all those countries before yeah. but i love them uh, and had different reasons to go there and so you know i i kind of returned to a lot of these so i'm not like trying to race and count all these countries and i, I don't have i do not have a quantitative motive i have a qualitative motive to my travel shall we say Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, in terms of favorites so far, because you say you go back a lot, which ones would you say are your top five? Top five what? Countries, cities. Sorry, let's go with cities because uh, countries could be, could be a little in the general. World? Yeah, in the cities world? in the world that you visited. Man. <laughs> hey, you have me hard. do top five. You have me do that's a list. True. That is true. Artists that is true, man. That is you don't true, think I was going to find a way to bring a list to you? That's, that's <laughs> true, man. Oh, boy. Let's see. Well, I am on my way to Brazil, and I will tell you that that is uh, definitely up there in my top five. No question. The country of Brazil, every time I go, I go to a different place. It's They're all different. I love them all. If I had to pick a city, I'd probably pick Rio because I've spent the most time there, but I also love other ones like Sao Paulo, but let's go with yeah. Rio. Um, I would then pick a country, geez, man, a city. Let's let's go with uh, in Asia. I will pick Tokyo because that city is just bananas. I mean, there's nothing like Tokyo. I mean, it's it's its own planet. You just have to go there to experience it. So, and, and the food is also just going to change your entire impression of like food on the planet of Earth. Like once you go, <laughs> once you eat food in Tokyo, you'll be like, oh, there's what levels. What, there's what levels. is everything else? <laughs> there's levels to this. So I'm going to say Tokyo, uh, Rio, and then I will pick, oh, man. I mean, the continent of Africa, there's so many cities that I love, man. I mean, since I'm doing this with you, bro, I feel like I should pick Legos, man. No, you know, you uh, should pick what you like want to pick. Legos. Bro, you know, I can't pick like, uh, I can't, I got to be careful if I'm picking anything outside Nigeria with you. Bro. Oh, you no, know, I'm not going to pick know, anything. You do know, you do know I spent a month in Lagos and we I talked do. about it. And it was very yes. impactful. It was very yeah. special. Um, I think the art, the music, you know, that's coming out of Nigeria is it has genuinely like, like it has become such a central part of my life. I listen to Nigerian Afrobeats daily. I mean, yeah. I, I put people onto it. My parents, my parents are listening to Nigerian Afrobeats in their mid seventies. They are playing Burna Boy. They're talking to their friends about Burna Boy. Like, Let's I mean, go. bro, it is a central part of my life. So yeah. in terms of the cultural influence, Nigeria, like it genuinely, it really stands out. And I had such a special, such a special time there. Um, although I could probably pick other places on the continent too. You know where I just went last year um, that I was so enamored with was Johannesburg in South Africa. Uh, yeah. I was, cause you know, I had spent a bunch of time in Cape town and I, and it's lovely, but I had never been to Joburg. And then I went to Joburg and I was like, oh God. Yeah, yeah this is a this is a different type of situation, man. And I was okay. just I was so enamored with it. So let me put people on to Lagos, a Joburg, Rio, uh um, Tokyo. Tokyo. And then I'm gonna put uh, I'll put Bangkok in there. I Bangkok's think Bangkok great. is just it's just a it's just a unbelievable city i mean the energy is just electric and it is just uh, a really 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 special place so i'll i'll go with those five now i appreciate you uh you know engaging with me in that but you know i, I was curious i had the mind that i was going to find a list but i was going to do it in real time and then once you said you had a few favorites you're going back to i was like there it is so <laughs> but no those are amazing countries and um definitely i know that i've only been to the airport in tokyo and i've always wanted to go but i have been to bangkok obviously lagos where i'm from and you know, I, I haven't gone to Joe Break and Brazil has been like a dream destination for me. Um, you know, even my heritage, I'm Yoruba, there are a lot of, you know, obviously because of the transatlantic slave trade, a lot of, uh, you know, remnants of part of my culture there. So I, I'll be 
very curious to go to Rio at some point. Well, and, and I'm going and I'm going to Salvador de Bahia, you know, this on, on this boat trip, you know, the Nomad Cruise ends there. And that is the capital of Afro-Brazilian culture. Of course. And I have not yet been there. And everyone who has been there has just raved about it. Like, you yeah. got to go. And now that I've spent so much time, I probably spent six months in West Africa, as you know. Yes. And so now going there, you know, I'm just like, man, I'm so excited. I'm excited too. Well, the thing about you though, because you we talk about travels, is it true that you call yourself the stylish minimalist? That's how I pack, man. That is uh, that is my packing routine. You know, I started off I started off uh, carrying an enormous amount of stuff and lugging huge suitcases across the world, and then I was like, there has got to be a better way. And so I started studying minimalist packing, and I started saying, how can I travel the world full time? to multiple climates with carry-on luggage only carry on you're talking about care I, I heard you say this and i still was i could it couldn't register i'm talking about you're going to different climates and you're saying everything still fits in the carry-on and you can do that for weeks um uh, bro i do it full time not for weeks i don't have a base sorry 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 the only the only time the only the only things i have in this world fit into my carry-on suitcase this is a, i'm a full-time digital nomad i do not have a base and my carry-on includes an espresso maker, a wine aerator, a three-piece suit. And then, yeah, I can go skiing. I can go to the beach. I can do all that stuff, man. And I never check a bag. Well, I mean, you don't wear the same clothes. Like, what, what do you do for clothes? You can't. That's not what you're wearing every day. You're not in a three-piece suit right now. <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. There's a, there's a technique to this, my friend. I actually, and I will tell you this, and I will give your audience this. I have actually recorded a free video training on exactly what I pack, a full luggage audit, how I pack, what I pack, what's in my suitcase, and the sort of principles of how to think about it. Because I don't assume that everyone's sense of you know style is exactly the same as mine or that their priorities are the same as mine. They might not need a professional podcasting studio or an espresso maker or things like that, but they might have other priorities that they want to put in their carry-on. So that's cool. Um, and so uh, if if folks want that, I have created um, you know a, a bunch of free stuff like that, and and they can get it at um, if they go to the maverickshow.com slash tayo. I have some free stuff there uh, for them. They can get the minimalist packing training and I'm going to put some other cool stuff up there if they're interested in the real estate stuff or the remote entrepreneur stuff or any of the stuff that we're talking about. I'm just going to put free goodies there and they can go there and uh, and check it all out for free. I love it. Thank you so much. And again, we'll, we'll put all these links in the show notes. Um, you know, if you want to work with him on your real estate, it'll be there. And then he's been yeah. so generous to give the audience some um, some free goodies here. I uh, I always wrap up my interview with this question because it's, you know, it's my mission statement reframed as a question. So, Matt, how do you use your difference to make a difference? You know, I was having a conversation a couple days ago. You actually came up, to be honest, man, because I recommend your uh, your interview to people all the time. You oh, did you. an interview on The Maverick Show, and it was pretty recently. Uh, I would encourage everybody that's listening to this uh, to go check it out because it was really, really substantive. I mean, we spoke for a couple hours. I broke it into two parts. I just recommended it to some people. I was having a conversation the other day, uh, and I was talking about some of the themes that we had discussed in that interview. And, you know, one of the things that I was talking about was, that, you know, they asked me about, um, you, you know, my perspective on some things. And I started going into this, um, what I started, what we started this interview with was my Irish heritage, right? And so we were talking about like the dynamics of whiteness in the United States and racism and all these different dynamics. And I said, one of the things that, you know, in terms of me, in terms of the way that I've started to think about these things is, you know, that connection with the Irish heritage and the the way that like you know a lot of these things start to fall by the wayside in terms of like understanding whiteness as an artificial colonial construction of dominance and actually if you go all the way back you see that the british were colonizing the irish and then the irish were involved in this anti-colonial resistance and still today people that look as white as anybody else actually have these anti-colonial politics right and so that's sort of i think for me has been really a moral kind of baseline and understanding that anybody in the world, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're born or what your, you know, background is, you can take a stand for a just position um, in every struggle, right? You can pay attention 
And in some cases, you know, you might be able to, like I did trace back your heritage. You'd be like, oh, actually, there is this cultural tradition of, quote unquote, my people, you know, the Irish that did all of this stuff. And it wasn't just me, some random white dude in the United States just saying I reject all this stuff. Like there's actually a cultural tradition of that. Right. Um, but but, it, you know, whatever your background is, I think, um, you know, you can take a stand for a just solution and you can just pay attention to which groups are being treated unfairly or being bullied and in, in are in vulnerable, marginalized positions? And how can you stand up and support those groups? And it doesn't have to be related to your own history. You know what I mean? Like the Irish history, I can be like, okay, there is this kind of proud tradition I can plug into. But if I didn't have that tradition, I would just take those positions anyways, because they're the morally upstanding uh, uh, position to take. And so, I mean, I try to have those conversations with people all the time. And depending on who they are and what their cultural traditions are, oftentimes there is a, you know, like in my Irish case, a proud, you know, tradition of their people, you know, taking stands for justice and doing things that they can align with. And even if there's not, then they can just you know, take it on moral principle anyways. And so I, I try to have those kind of conversations with people. That's one of the ways that I try to contribute and make a difference. But there you have it, Matt Bowles. This has been so fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed just diving into your origins and then just how your worldviews and the transformation of just yourself from, you know, an employee to an entrepreneur. It's, it's been really fun. Bro, I appreciate it so much, man. And if if folks enjoyed this conversation, I really encourage you to listen to the tables being turned and uh, Tayo and I talking uh, with me interviewing him on my show. You can find The Maverick Show wherever you are listening to this episode. Just mm -hmm. type in The Maverick Show with Matt Bowles. You'll find the show and just scroll down and you'll see Tyler's picture there and you can click into the episode. And then again, if you want any of that free stuff, I'm going to put the minimalist packing video. I'll put um, you know a free training on building a location independent business. Uh, the real estate stuff or any of that stuff, just go to themaverickshow.com slash Tayo and uh, you'll see it all there. We'd love to hear from people. Make sure again to put all these in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really, really fun. And uh, Kings, Queens and Royalty, till next time, use a difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.